page five today, and we'll continue our series from self-help to God's help in just a moment. This is just week number two. We began with session one last week. We'll pick up with session two this week. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This evening at six o'clock is the first of eight sessions in a marriage series called Marriage Oneness. Any of you that are interested in that then are welcome to attend. If you need child care to attend tonight, we're looking to supply that, but we need to know children and ages, a number of children and ages. So we're asking you to register for that. If you haven't registered already, you can do that before you leave today in our resource center. It's out that back door and across the hallway, and you can indicate that you're coming and then uh, what, what uh, number and ages of children that you'll you'll be bringing. That's tonight at uh, 6 o'clock. This Wednesday, Dr. Combs will continue the series he began last week and will be doing throughout the semester. Uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock, a series on church history. Uh, how did we get here? Church history made easy. That's the, uh, that's the name of it. Uh, so if you missed last week, you've only missed the opening week. So I would encourage you to be a part of that. I'm sure it'll be of great help uh, to uh, all of you. Seven o'clock. And then as that's going on, we have our Pioneer Club ministry for our elementary age kids, our teenage ministry, high impact. And then we offer nursery and toddler as well. That's Wednesdays at uh, Wednesdays at seven o'clock. And then we have uh, coming up just a few things for those of you that are new, uh, t- particularly to make note of. One is our next newcomer's brunch at our house. It's just over a month away. It's on March the 2nd. That's a Saturday, 10 a.m. And we offer these brunches a few times throughout the year so that we get a chance, my wife and I, to meet you in a setting other than here uh, and uh, just have an informal time of brunch and getting to know one another. We don't have a program for that, uh, but we always enjoy those, and usually the people who come enjoy it as well. And if you don't enjoy our company, you'll enjoy my wife's food, uh, if nothing else. So we would love to have you come. We need to know how many people are coming, though, so let the folks at the desk that's out in the lobby, the information center desk in the lobby know, and they'll put your name on the list and they'll give you an invitation as well with a map to our house and a reminder of the date and time. And on the 16th of March, this is for everybody, uh, but for those of you that are new, it's another event that we offer to help you get to know folks in a setting other than here because this is a somewhat hard setting to do that. And that is our next family event is Saturday, March the 16th at 1.30, 1.30 to 3. We're going to be having an ice skating event at what used to be called the Ice Box in Brownstown. It's on Telegraph just north of West Road. I think it's called the Brownstown Sports Center now. Uh, so we've done that a number of times over the years. We alternate some years bowling uh, in the winter, some years ice skating. We're back on to ice skating this year. I'm look, looking forward to hopefully being able to get out and ice skate. We'll try out the replacement hip that was replaced back in July. So this will be a first time for that. So please make note of that. And that's for the whole family. And they have the little uh, the little frames that the kids can use to skate around with uh, there as well. So we'll have an hour and a half rental for the skates is $3. And the total uh, price that you'll pay is $5. So $5 for entry fee and $3 for uh, for skate rental. So those are some of the things that are coming up. This series is, as you see on the screen and on the front cover of the notes that you should have from self-help to God's help. Last week, we introduced the series by filling in the chart that is going to, you're going to see throughout these notes, most of the pages of these notes, 
have a chart that shows us the process of biblical change. And we introduced that chart last week. It's on pages two and four, pages two and four, but today we're going to be on page five. Now, last week, most of you couldn't read those words there, but I just gave them to you verbally. If you weren't here last week, all of our sessions are recorded on our website, so you can listen to that and you can fill that in. But what we're going to be doing going forward, starting today, is we're going to be looking at each of those components on that chart, taking two weeks of each of the four sections to fill in our eight weeks together. So today we're going to start with the top, with heat, and we have a larger version of that. I think Larry made a larger version of that. Do you guys see it? Uh, He has two versions. He has the old version, and I think that's the old one. And then he has a larger version. That So if you guys find that, uh, then use that one. And if that's the larger version, then it's not as large as I thought it was going to be. So that's what we did last week. Ah, very good. Thanks, guys. So we're going to be looking at that today. What is your situation? Today and next week. And then we'll move around the chart in the in the weeks to come. Now, we're doing this from self-help to God's help because God is in the change business. God is in the business of seeing his people changed on a regular basis. Now, we know that God is in that change business because God made us originally in his image. The Bible teaches, you know, that the image of God, the reflection of his character back to him that he desires to see and thus made us in his image, that image has been marred by sin. It's not been obliterated. You can still see the vestiges of the character of God in humanity, even humanity that doesn't know God, doesn't know Christ. They still bear the image of God, the Bible teaches. So it's not been obliterated, but it's been marred. It's been distorted. God, when he looks at us, does not see himself clearly in terms of his character. And that was God's original design. And God is still in the business of making sure that happens. So... He is now repairing the mirrors that we were made to be. We were made to be mirrors that reflect God back to God, but these mirrors are broken so that when God looks at us, he sees himself in a distorted way. Those of us that are Christians who have a relationship with God through Jesus, that repair project has started. Some of the cracks have been filled in, but it's still distorted. I am still not a clear, absolutely clear reflection of God back to God. And I won't be this side of heaven. When I get to heaven, I will reflect God's character perfectly. That will be the glorified state. But in the meantime, God is in the change process. The Bible teaches in passages like uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that God is in the process of, I'm quoting, conforming us to the image of his dear son conforming us to the image of Christ. So God's in the process of making us to look like Christ. God cares that we change. God cares that we move from where we are to the next step in Christ-likeness. That's what he's doing in bringing us to himself and then working in our lives in an ongoing way. God is in the change process. We know that because he cares about his image being reflected to him. We know that in passages like 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 3. One of the 
best known verses in the Bible is contained in that passage. Second Timothy chapter three and verse 16 says that all scripture is God breathed and is useful, is profitable. And then it tells you four things for which it is useful, profitable. I'll mention those in a minute. But what does that have to do? What does it have to do with the change process? Well, it's this, that two verses before or one verse before that uh, in Second Timothy chapter three, verse 15 Paul, who wrote it, says to Timothy, to whom he wrote it, he says, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And those scriptures are able to bring you to salvation. And then he says in verse 16, all scripture has been breathed out by God and is useful, is profitable for. So we know God's in the change process because of the logic, the the sequence that Paul has in that important passage. It starts with salvation. And the message of salvation comes through the scriptures, he tells Timothy. But then he moves from verse 15 on the issue of salvation. He moves to verse 16, the issue of sanctification. You're saved, but now you need to grow in that salvation. And so he says these scriptures that teach you what salvation is and how to how to attain it. These same scriptures are breathed out by God and are useful for these things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting and training. So you have the sequence of salvation and sanctification. And then within that sanctification verse, verse 16, you have a sequence there. Those four items that the passage tells us Scripture is useful for, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, those four items are in a logical sequence themselves. You can't be rebuked until you're first taught. You don't know what you're being rebuked about until you're first taught what the standard is. You can't be corrected until you're first rebuked. So it's in a logical sequence that the Word of God teaches us. It shows us who God is, who we are, and there's always a gap between those two. And then from the scriptures, having seen that gap, it results in the second item, rebuking. It's the same word used elsewhere in scripture for conviction. So you could translate that. Teaching results in conviction. I see God and I see his character. I see myself. There's this gap and I'm convicted. That conviction, though, thankfully, God doesn't just leave us there. He just puts a period there and he says, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and convicting you, period. Have a good day. But he doesn't do that. It's teaching, convicting and then correcting. And the word translated correct means to cause to stand something which has previously fallen. So you're convicted, you've fallen, but now the scriptures tell you how to stand up again. And then the final item is training. Discipline, training, and righteousness. In fact, the word that's translated training is elsewhere translated discipline in your New Testament. So that you're corrected and the word of God teaches you habits, disciplined training in godliness, so that these become permanent fixtures in your life. All right. So my point in all that is, is God's in the change business. God cares that you and I are becoming more like Jesus. 
conformed to his image. He's given us his word in order to bring salvation. Having brought salvation, he now is involved in the sanctification process, progressively setting us apart from the world and from sin and to and to God. And he does that through this teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training process. God cares about change. God cares about change. But too often we don't. Too often we are content to remain where we are. One of the, I'll give you two reasons why we do that. Why that we don't care so much about it from self-help to God's help. And why is pastor wasting nine weeks to go through this? God cares about change, but too often we don't. And there's a couple reasons why we don't. One is we don't think this change is necessary. We don't think it's necessary because I'm already saved. I'm already going to heaven. And for too many Christians, that's the the whole gig. Is have I punched my ticket with Jesus? Do I have my ticket to go to, to heaven? And so I say it this way. For too many professing Christians, Jesus is my ticket to heaven, but he is not my passport through life. Jesus doesn't have a whole lot to do with how I go through life. I mean, a little bit. We're at church. But in terms of how I actually live my life in the day-to-day and how much I'm depending upon him and how much I'm conforming to his image and how much I care about that, it's really, it's nice if it happens, but it doesn't really have to happen because I'm going to heaven anyway. So one reason we don't care about change is because we don't think it's necessary. Another reason too many of us don't care about change is because we don't think it's possible. We don't think it's necessary, but we also don't think it's possible. Because you have so many Christians that you hang around in church over a number of years who don't think it's necessary. Therefore, if they don't think it's necessary, you don't see it happening. And because we don't see it happening, we conclude it really doesn't happen. It's not possible. After all, people are set in their ways. People have their habits. I'm an old dog and you can't teach me new tricks. Right? And as you've heard me say before, that would be true if we were talking about dogs and we're talking about tricks. But we're not talking about dogs. We're talking about image bearers. We're talking about people who claim to be followers of Christ. And we're talking about people in whom God desires to do this work that I mentioned earlier. So why are we taking now eight more weeks to go through from self-help to God's help and this kind of chart on uh, how to change. It's because of that. God cares about it. And I'm saying to you, we don't care about it too, uh, very often, unfortunately, but we, but we should. Now, last week, we saw the big picture on, and filled in uh, the chart. It's on both pages two and four, but today we're on page five. The real God in the, the real world. And we're going to spend two weeks starting today looking at the heat of life. The chart envisions life this way, that you are, life is a wilderness. And you're going to encounter different things in the wilderness that is your, your life. And as you go through that wilderness of life, there's heat that bears down upon you. Heat in the form of circumstances, trials, difficulties, even we're going to see blessings that can actually be inducements to sin. Even blessings can be. So the heat of life is all of that. The heat of life 
is what is your situation? And that's why it says that up there. And we're going to talk today about our situations and next week about our situations. Today, looking at our situations from God's perspective. Next week, looking at ourselves in the heat of life. So this one is titled, as you see at the top of page five, the real God in the real world. Next week, we're going to look at ourselves in that real world and the heat that is our our situations. So think of it this way. Think about a guy who's been working at a company for a number of years, and he's done well. He's actually the, the youngest guy to become a design team leader in the history of the company. So he's done very well, and they've been working for a couple of years on a project that they're very excited about rolling out a prototype of the of the uh, of the project of the item, and so he gets called into his uh, boss's office, and he's been being praised, and ever, there's been a lot of excitement about this thing. He gets called into his boss's office, and he's expecting to get a pat on the back, maybe even a raise. But instead, his boss tells him, "I've got bad news," and the bad news is that we have spent so much time and investment on the design process that we didn't do any market research. <laughs> And another company has just come out with what we've been trying to design. And so we're going to have to let you go. And not only are we going to have to let you go, I don't know if there's going to be a spot for you to work in this industry going forward. Well, okay. Now, what happens to that guy? You're that guy. What happens to you? You just had a gut punch in life. The heat of life. What is your situation? Well, that's my situation now. I just lost my job and maybe my future. And and, and what happens is you start to feel stuff. Your emotions start to uh, surface. And in the midst of those uh, emotions, it can imperceptibly begin to affect what you believe. You see, because very few of us wake up one morning and decide to change our theology. Almost nobody wakes up and say, you know what, I'm not going to believe in God anymore. Almost nobody does that. What happens is they get in the heat of life, stuff happens, and then they're affected emotionally, and their emotions start to imperceptibly, over time, start to dictate how they think, what they believe. Changes in our belief system are seldom self-conscious. That guy that I told you about went through a, a painful experience. And in ways he doesn't recognize and in ways we don't often recognize, those kinds of difficult experiences become the interpretive grid through which we see life. They become the lenses now through which we're seeing ourselves, we're seeing God. I mean, what's going to happen when you go through that? You're going, why? Why? What did I do? You're going to be asking questions about yourself. I thought I was, I thought I was great. Okay, we're not doing that. There's got to be a place for me with something else, right? I've shown that I'm a talented, hard worker, all of that. Why isn't there? So what's wrong with me? So now this is the interpretive grid that I'm seeing myself through. And then you start to say, well, what about God? Where's God in this? How is God letting this, letting this happen? So this becomes the lenses through which I'm seeing myself, I'm seeing God, I'm seeing other people, I'm seeing, I'm seeing life. 
We haven't thought about it through a careful theological grid. We're just kind of going through it. And these unresolved feelings become our interpretations on life. And so that guy who heard that news, he's going to have all kinds of emotions. He's going to be discouraged. He's going to feel perhaps alone. Particularly, where's God? I'm losing the camaraderie of these people that I've been on this uh, team with. He's wondering why these things are are happening, happening to him. And yet he's largely unaware that there's a spiritual battle that's that's going along, going on inside of him. So I ask you, as I ask myself, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt alone, wondering if anybody would understand what you're going through? Have you ever hidden a struggle because you were afraid of what people would think? Have you ever thought a problem was too big to be solved? Has that ever led you to question whether God understood or cared about you? Think about your faith. Has your faith, what you believed, really been shaped by teaching and preaching and personal Bible study? Or is there a gap between what we profess to believe and what we practically believe in everyday life when we encounter life's heat? Like I was talking about in first hour. And for many of us, such a gap does indeed exist. So the Bible addresses that. The Bible addresses real life in all of its ugliness. And on page 5, you have a a passage. We're going to read the passage. It's a long passage, but we're going to read it. It's a really dark passage. Now, don't read it yet. We'll read it together in a a bit, okay? But we're going to read this really dark passage from the, the Psalms in a bit. And it's a very important passage because... It teaches us that in the midst of the scorching heat of the difficulty in our lives or even the blessing that goes with our situations. But very often in a fallen world, it's difficulty, it's trial. And in the midst of, in the midst of all of that, we're reacting to it. And that's what the rest of the chart's gonna be. How do you react to your situations? How we react to our situations is gonna affect the kind of fruit that comes out of those situations. So we're interacting with our situations, whether trouble, whether of of blessing. We're always responding to what's happening to us. And the Bible does not offer us a sanitized version of life. You read through the Bible and there are dark, shocking, and painful stories all over the place. The Bible shows you people who think and act and plan and decide and speak just like we do. Now think about this. If the Bible left out the hard difficult stories. If the Bible left that stuff out, then how would you actually be able to trust what the Bible has to say? How would we actually ever be able to really believe that God's word could help us if it left out the real life stories of murder and rape and famine and disease and judgment and depression and war and adultery and theft and corruption and overwhelming fear and depression? And the Bible's got all of that. But if it left that stuff out, how could you trust that the Bible could actually help? Because this is the, wouldn't be real life then, would it? So the Bible's given us, given us real life. And further, it's telling us that the Bible is addressing real life, and it's also telling us, importantly, that God understands real life. That nothing that's happening in the heat of your situation is surprising or shocking to God. Ain't nothing going on in your life, forgive the grammar, 
that God has not addressed in precept or in principle in in Scripture. We're never, hear this, we're never going to face an experience, no matter how dark or difficult, that would be a shock to our God. And because that's true, some of the most comforting passages in the Bible are passages that don't talk about comfort. They're passages that just lay out how it is. And so then I can go, God gets it. God understands this. Others have gone before me who have gone through this very thing or things like this. And thereby they comfort us. One of those is in Psalm 88. And we have that for you on page number five. O Lord, the God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you, turn your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily upon me. You've overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken... You see the Selah there at the end of verse 7? We'll we'll talk about that in a bit. You've taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call out to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me. You've taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. Period. Anybody ever seen cross stitch with that on it? Anybody ever signed your Bible like, you know, with their life verse, a card, and here's my life verse? Psalm 88. Darkness is my closest friend. And there it is in Holy Scripture. And you have, you have a bunch of passages in the Bible like that. Just crying out to God, and this is dark, and it's difficult, and it's horrible. And I mentioned there's a couple of selahs in, the, in that passage. And the reason that those are there is because that psalm is a song. And so that was probably a musical notation, uh, Old Testament scholars believe. And if you were to look at the superscription, if you look at that in your Bible, it tells you that this is a song. All right, so let's just stop there for a second. It's a song? So you're supposed to sing that? Now, would that ever make the top 400, let alone the top 40? On the Christian radio station? 
We'd have to jazz it up, wouldn't we? You know, I can't snap my fingers very well. Darkness is my only friend. I mean, we can, we can jazz it up. We can make something out of it, right? Just as an aside, do you see how really unfaithful the Christian industry, the Christian industrial complex is to actually Scripture? Because you never hear stuff like that. But it's real, and it's all over the Bible. It's a song. It was supposed to be sung. And if you look at the superscription up at the top of the psalm, it says it's not only a song, but it's a song of the sons of Korah. And who are they? They were the doorkeepers at the tabernacle. One of the songs that they would, God's people would sing as they came into the tabernacle would be this. So they would sing that. Now, how's that encouraging to, to anybody? Well, it's encouraging in that it shows that God wants these difficulties and these realities of life to be mixed in with the tremendous hopes that he offers us in Scripture. God intends the darkest human laments to be brought together with the brightest human hopes. And so a psalm like this communicates, come to me as you are with all your doubt and all your fear and all your pain and all your discouragement. Hold before me your shattered hopes and your dreams. Find redemption and rest when it seems there is none to be found. Don't hesitate because your heart is weak and your mind is confused. Don't hesitate because you've questioned my goodness and love. Come as you are because my sacrifice is for you just as you are. That's the kind of honesty God wants us to bring before him. It's the kind of honesty God wants us to bring before him in worship as well. So this is called biblical realism. The Bible's real about what's going on in the heat of life in your situation. So it communicates to you and it communicates to me that God gets it. God understands the full range of human experience from supreme joy, but also to crushing sorrow. It teaches us that the promises of the Redeemer, of Christ, come to people who live in a world where these kinds of things take place. It teaches us about God's honesty about these experiences. And so it invites me to be honest about the things that I face. That true Christianity is never blind or stoic in its reactions to life. Going to God with my despair, my doubt, my fear, hear this, is an act of faith. It's an act of believing. I'm being honest. And Psalm 88 reminds me to run to God in desperate moments, not run away from Him. And a psalm like this reminds us that the Bible is not about an idyllic world full of noble people who always make the right choice. The Bible describes a world that we recognize where very good and very bad things happen and where people make wonderful and horrible choices. The Bible describes a world that sometimes makes us laugh, but also often makes us, makes us cry. Psalm 88. This biblical realism takes place in other passages as well. In the middle of page 5, we have for you James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is another one of those passages that gives us this realistic view of 
scripture or realistic view of life. Now, the background, just very quickly, to James chapter 1. James is a prominent pastor in Jerusalem. And the people to whom James is, is writing are people who are going through difficulty. They're going through severe trial. In all likelihood, they're going through severe persecution, uh, many of them in, in Jerusalem, that broke out with the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. You all remember that? That this persecution breaks out in the city of Jerusalem. Peter, or excuse me, Stephen is stoned to death. And then uh, people are scattered from there, from Jerusalem, and they're scattered into Samaria uh, and to Judah and to the outskirts of, of Jerusalem because of that. And when James then writes his letter, the book of James, he says, I'm writing to the diaspora. Verse 1 says, James writing to the 12 tribes, that is Jewish Christian people who are scattered abroad, dispersed. Why are they dispersed? Because this persecution is going on. And in the midst of this persecution, he says in verses, in verse 2, consider it joy, brothers, whenever you fall into trials of, of various kinds. And he goes on to talk about how God works in these trials in this biblically realistic approach. So let me remind you of that. Consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. It would be different if it said, consider it joy, brothers, if you fall into. But he doesn't say if, he says when. So these things are inevitable. You live in a fallen world, we're going to face hardships, we're going to face the heat of life, but you can do it and endure it in a different way. Doesn't change the temperature. The trial is still extremely difficult. Being a Christian in a fallen world doesn't mean that things go well with you. You've heard me say before, it may mean that things go worse with you. Because you now have more people to hate you. Because you're a Christian, you certainly have Satan who hates you. And wants to defeat you. So it doesn't mean that things go better. They may go worse, but they can go different. You can experience them in a different way. That's the joy part. But when, not if, you experience trials, so you're being tried, that's the idea, your faith is being tested. We know that because the next verse, verse 3 says, because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of what you believe works perseverance. Perseverance develops character, says James. So it's not if these things happen, it's when they happen. They're designed to test, they will test, what do we really believe? If you were here for the first hour, I talked about the exam question. You can answer it right on an exam question, but how do you answer it in the midst of the difficulty? That's where the real test is. The testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith. So consider it pure joy, brothers, when, not if, you fall into these trials. And then it says this, of various kinds. When it says of various kinds, it's uh, referring to the unlimited variety that these trials come in. 
So they can just think about how many different kinds of trials, difficulties in the heat of life you can have. You can have a health situation. You can have a financial situation. You can have a relational situation. You can have a marital relational situation. You can have a parental relational situation. You've got a problem with your child. You've got a problem with your spouse. You've got a problem with your boss. You've got a problem with somebody at church. So these situations, these trials, these testings can be circumstances, but those circumstances can include relationships that you're in as well. But you can consider them joy because God actually is at work in these things. And so even though you don't like the situation, you can have a, an abiding sense of delight, that's what joy is, that God is at work through this. That even though I've got a health situation, I still delight in the fact that God is doing something in and through this. I know that and I believe that my faith is being tested in that. Now it goes on, the chapter goes on to say, in order for you to do it that way, to apply to your situation what you know to be true about God and his concern for you and what it is he's trying to develop in you, in order for you to actually do that, apply what you know, you need wisdom. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the application of what you know. And that's why verse 5 in James chapter 1 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So you're asking God, God, help me in this difficult situation to apply in this situation what I know to be true about you, about myself, about others, about your work in your world. Help me to apply that. I need wisdom to do it. Because the thing is so difficult that I can easily be drawn away. And then the chapter goes on to describe different kinds of circumstances that you can be in. In verse 9, it talks about the brother being of low degree, low position. It talks about the brother who is rich. So the blessing can be a temptation or can be a trial for you as, as well, depending on how you respond to it. Your faith, what you believe is being tested. So now I'm being blessed. So do I become independent of God? Do I act like I've got everything that I want because this has been my real goal rather than God? And then you come down to verse 13. James chapter 1 and verse 13. And it says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And it goes on to say that God's character is such that he cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt anyone. But it tells you, beginning in verse 14, about the process of temptation and sinning. But each one is drawn away when? By their own desire. King James says by their own lust. It just means intense desire for someone or something. Each one is drawn away. By something that has been dangled out in front of us that, that we want. So in the midst of the heat, in the midst of the trial, God is testing what we believe. He's going to accomplish something good, namely the building of character. We need wisdom in that. The trial can be something 
difficult. It can even be a blessing that we react to, but we are reacting one way or another. And if in the midst of that we sin in our reaction, then don't say it's God's fault because God is the one who put me in this situation. Remember, it is God who allowed that situation. But God allowed that situation for a good purpose. Whether that good purpose is achieved depends on how we respond to it. And if we respond to it by our own sinful desires and then are entrapped, then we don't blame God. Now, verse 13 and verse 14 use the word tempted, when tempted. In Greek, the word tempted in verses 13 and 14 is the same word as the word trial back in verse 2. Verse 2 says, My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of various kinds. Then you come down to verse 13 and it says, When tempted, you could translate that, When tried, don't blame God when you fail the test. Don't blame God when you sin. Now, why do the why does the NIV, why do most of the English translations take this Greek word that is and, and call it a trial in verse 2 and call it tempted in verses 13 and 14? Here's why. It's the exact same circumstance. It's the exact same situation. But that same situation, the outcome of that situation is going to be different depending on how we respond to it. So if we respond to it sinfully, getting angry at God, becoming depressed, becoming fearful, not believing that God's on the throne, all the things that we say we believe about God, if all of those things happen to us, then that same situation that for one person becomes a trial that leads to godly character becomes to another person a temptation that leads to sin. Same situation, two different responses. In the heat of the heat of life. Now that's your life. That's that's my life. That's where that's where we live. And so I want to end with asking you a few questions, and then we'll pick up the heat and the situation next week. Ask yourself. I'm asking you to ask yourself: What pressures do you regularly face? What are your God-given opportunities in those pressures? What are your everyday responsibilities? Where are you facing difficult circumstances? What temptations are you facing? Who are the difficult people in your life? (laughs) Don't yell that out. What unexpected blessings have you received? And how are you responding to those? In what situations do you feel alone or misunderstood? In what areas do you feel overwhelmed by the things that are assigned to you? Just a few more. What are the places you're tempted to hide from or avoid? What situations tempt you to say you're okay when you're actually not? 
What's the hardest experience of your past? And lastly, what's your greatest fear about the future? Now, we have these recorded, so you can listen to those again. Get them. I know I went through them quickly. But it's just trying to give you an inventory to think about your heat, think about your situation, so that we can set the stage to then think about how we react to those things and how those then produce either good or ill fruit in in our lives. We're going to continue that then next week. Let's ask the Lord to go with us and bring us back safely next Lord's Day, all right? Father, thank you for your change project in the lives of your people. Thank you, Lord, that you are actively at work in conforming us to the image of Jesus. Lord, I ask you to help me and help us to be people who intensely desire that. Desire to be better next month than we are now. Better next year than we were last year. Help us, Lord, to continue to to desire to please you with our lives, to reflect you in our character. Help us, Lord, not to buy into the lie that change is not necessary or that it can't be done. You desire it. You are at work in our lives to see it happen. But we must participate with you in that change project. And so we ask you, Lord, to to burden our hearts for that change. To not be content with where we are, but desire to go where you desire us to be. And we ask you, Lord, to help us in this class then to be able to do that. Thank you for giving us a, a biblical portrait of what change looks like. And it begins with our circumstances and where you have sovereignly assigned us to be. Whether difficult or in blessing, we need to evaluate how we're reacting to those. Are we growing in Christ-like character or are we sinning in our response to them? Lord, thank you for being real in the way you talk about life in Scripture. So that we know that you understand fully every experience that we go through. We know that there are others who have gone before us who have gone through the same or similar kinds of things. And we can see your work in their lives. It gives us hope for ourselves. So, Lord, we thank you for all of these things. And thank you that we've been able to have these two weeks now of this class. We ask your blessing upon uh, the seven remaining weeks. And I ask you to allow these dear friends to be able to attend and for it to have good effect in all of our lives for your glory. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.